all right shit fits this is episode 217 with manish sethi this one is very interesting and outside kind of the scope of fitness and health but kind of health related as manish is the founder and ceo of a company called pavlock which is a smart watch that gives you a small electrical shock if you are doing a bad habit. He has been seen on Shark Tank with his uh, product, and it's an interesting, interesting topic where we get into, you know, the psychology of breaking habits with negative and positive reinforcement. And when I posted this online, I kind of opened Pandora's box on opinions on this. So listen for yourself, see what you think, and message me back because I'm kind of curious about your thoughts on this product. So without further ado, here we go. Hello, boys and girls. Welcome back to another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. I'm your lovely host, Rafael Matuszewski, and joining me for the first time today is Manish Sethi. Say hello. Hey, how's it going? Awesome. So I always like to start the show with some easy, easy lobbing questions to get the juices flowing. So the first one is, what do you got planned for the weekend? Uh, this weekend, I have no plans. Oh, no, nice. Standard weekend. There you go. Um, yeah, that's it. Sweet. Um, so the second easy one, what is the current book you're reading or listening to? I'm currently reading a book called Hacking Growth. Okay. And I'm listening to a book called Awesome. So are you a type of person that reads like multiple books at the same time or do you have to like stick to one at a time? Um, I often read a couple books at a time, but usually I read through one. Um, I definitely listen and read a book every like different books. So okay. I always, uh, I have part of my morning routine is to read for at least 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And so I always am reading a book and then usually when I walk, I'm listening to a book. So I get to read. Awesome. Um, so, last easy question: What is your biggest pet peeve, and why? Mm, probably people who, including myself, who make commitments and don't stick through with them. Fair enough. Yeah. See what's important to solve. Yeah. Um, so let's get a little intro for you, and can you tell the audience who you are, what you do, and how did you get into the industry you're in today? Sure. Uh, my name is Manish Sethi. I'm the founder of a company called Pavlock. Uh, we create technology, software, and coaching that helps people change their habits. Um, so the thing we're most well known for is the wearable device with the same name, Pavlock. Uh, it's a device that's essentially a smart dog shot collar for humans. It vibrates to give positive rewards, and then it beeps and uses an electric stimulus called a zap to help stop you from doing bad habits. Um, I got into this industry because I grew up extremely, um, I was diagnosed as ADHD, uh, attention deficit disorder, and I always had trouble focusing. Uh, so I would do a lot of experiments on myself. Um, I went to a university, Stanford University, where I worked with a professor named BJ Fogg. Uh, he ran a habit lab, and I was very fascinated by um, how some people had good habits and how other people had bad habits and how I had uh, massively bad habits. But what was really interesting to me was that I was still able to succeed, even horrible habits and inability to focus. Um, and so I was very interested in that concept, like why would I get work done at the last minute, always just before it was due, 
when other people would work on it for you know six months straight, and yet at the end of the day we get the same grade. And um, so I started a blog where I would do experiments on myself. My readers voted where I would go and what I would do. Uh, I ran this blog for about five years, and towards the end of it, uh, around 2013, you do it. Sorry about that. Towards the end of it. Uh, I did an experimentation series where I tried to get myself to write more. So in one experiment, I hired a girl whose job was to follow me around, and every time I wasted time online, she would slap me in the face. Um, so if you, if you Google slapped by Craigslister, you'll see this, uh, you'll see this post. And um, I posted this just as one of my experimentation articles, and the article went super viral. Within... Uh, one, within one day of posting it, I was being called by NPR. I was being called by Anderson Cooper. I was already on the Daily Mail, the Telegraph. I was in like a thousand different newspapers. It turns out that the word slapper also means prostitute in England. So the title of the article apparently was very punny. I had no idea. And so um, anyway, for about three days, well, what happened, what, what happened in the article was I hired this girl whose job was to follow me around. Every time I, I, I stopped working, she would tap me on the shoulder. And then if I didn't listen to her, she would hit me. And I only got hit like once in the whole week. But during that week, it, I finished four months of content in like four or five days. Like I sat down to write and then I just wrote. And every time I stopped writing, she would tap me on the shoulder. And I just did it. And it was not like it was hard. It didn't feel like I like, was discouraged. It felt like I had a project I was working on with somebody else who was just holding me accountable. And so it was really amazing, uh, I guess, that, that the article really resonated with a lot of people because a lot of people have a lot of trouble focusing these days and um, defending against distractions. And so for the next three days, I was super famous. I was on all these television shows, all these music broadcasts, and three days later, nobody cared anymore. Um, my fame had disappeared. My 15 minutes was up. And so... I said, all right, well, how can we make this happen again? How do we do another viral boost? And I called up a friend. I was like, what if we take like a dog collar, like a zap, like a zapper, and set it so every time I go on Facebook, it gives me a shot. Like, I bet that would go viral. My friend said, let's go to Radio Shack. So we did. We bought a dog collar, bought a little Arduino. He was better than I was at electronics. He ripped it apart. And like 12 hours later, we had this little crude prototype where every time I went on Facebook, I would get a zap. And I was about to post the video. It was hilarious. Um, but right before I posted it, I thought to myself, this is actually really interesting. There's a million wearables out there that are tracking what I do, but this one's actually changing what I do. Maybe there's something here that's deeper than a funny blog post. Maybe this is like a real product that can really help people. And that was kind of the genesis for uh, Padlock, which is essentially a wearable device that is your personal coach on your wrist. That is a company that we created that uh, we have 75,000 customers, uh, about 20,000 people use it every day. Um, the product is essentially a habit trainer, most commonly used for waking up in the morning and doing morning routines, followed by being productive and not wasting time online, and then followed that by quitting smoking and quitting now by a bunch of bad habit cessation techniques. So that's my company, and that's what we do. Awesome. So let's kind of unravel all that. So I'm kind of curious, like, what's your background? Like, are you from the tech world, psychology world? Like, what's your background for education? Um, I mean, yeah, from actually all of that. Um, so my background growing up, I grew up in California, small little town, little suburb of Sacramento. And, um, I was always into making, I was always into video games. I was like an entrepreneur when I was a kid. Uh, so I'd always start off like when I was like five, I was like selling books on the street and stuff. And, um, 
I started a business where I would buy stuff from one website and buy video games from a website and resell them on eBay. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of those boxes came, and the box was already open, so I thought, oh, let me play this game. And the game was called Age of Empires. Uh, and the game got me addicted to video games. But I was mostly interested about the um, scripting side, because on Age of Empires, you could, like, program some stuff in a text editor, and it would make changes. And um, so it got me really interested in the idea of making video games. And so... A couple of years later, um, I started following this writer who wrote about how to make video games, and he was hosting a conference in uh, Santa Clara uh, near San Francisco. I convinced my parents to let me go. I was 12 years old. Um, I convinced them to let me go to a conference, and I got to meet my hero, this uh, game programming guy. And I got back to my hotel that night, and there was this um, there was this like book uh, publishing house that was there, and I wrote on the forum of this guy I really respected. I wrote. Um, Someday, like, I was the young kid there. It was so nice to meet all of you. Um, maybe someday I could write a book. Maybe, like, a book like Game Programming for Kids or something. And my hero wrote back to me, uh, I'll never hire anybody who's younger than 25. You're not smart enough, you're not diligent enough, and you'll never get it done. And I was like, fuck you. I was only 12. So I pulled myself up in my room at 12 years old, and I wrote 80 pages of a book on how to make video games and I sent it above his head, pretending to be an adult. And I ended up getting a book deal signed at 12 years old. Uh, I had to have my parents co-sign it with me. Uh, the book was called Game Programming for Teens. It came out in, I think, 2004. Ended up becoming an international bestseller. Uh, it was a textbook in Poland, so every single kid who was in high school in Warsaw from like 2005 through 2009 read my book. Um, and ended up I wrote like four or five other books on programming. So I wrote books on web design, on PHP, on 3D game design, stuff like that. Um, and so that came early on, 14 through 20. From there, I went to Stanford and I did. Uh, I was really interested in psychology and marketing. Um, so I did a master. I did an undergrad degree in um, basically a mixture of marketing and computer science. It's called Science, Technology, and Society. Um, but what was really powerful from Stanford was that they let me take two years off to travel. And so I took two years off, and that's where I launched my blog. Awesome. So it kind of almost seems like you have that chip on your shoulder and that's kind of been like the driving force behind this entrepreneurial like life that you kind of built right now. Am I right? I'm only motivated by, um, by proving people. I'm motivated mostly by, um, deadlines, punishers and people and proving people wrong. There's a big poster in my room that says, um, sometimes I feel like giving up, but then I remember all those motherfuckers I have to prove wrong. <laughs> nice. Yeah, but uh, that was one of the things that blew my mind, especially as I started building Pavlock, was that people talk about positive reinforcement and rewards, and to me, it's such BS. Like, they would always tell me all these self-improvement habit books would keep saying, in order to get work done, take your, take your product, take your paper, like a, a rebook on how to write essays in college. And it's like, take your assignment, break it down into small, manageable chunks, and then just do a small amount every day. And I'm like, this is bullshit. It just, I, it doesn't happen. Nope. Who the fuck does that? And, and then I started noticing, though, that every time that I was getting up to the deadline, somehow I would hyper-focus, and I would always get the paper done right before the deadline was due. The secret was not to break my habit into manageable chunks. The secret was to add more deadlines. How do I add more non-fake, non-cheatable, real deadlines into my daily routine such that deadlines are the motivator? Why, why am I afraid of deadlines if they're the only thing that works? And why am I trying to fight back against myself? If I know that deadlines work, how do I create more deadlines? 
And I started to realize that there's a couple ways, but the main core of it happens to be any sort of negative reinforcer or consequence. There's two types of personalities. There's uh, there's people with high conscientiousness or low conscientiousness. Call it a, type A and type B. Call it um, Myers-Briggs, judgers and perceivers, whatever you call it. There's people who feel uncomfortable leaving stuff undone, and there's other people who feel very uncomfortable finishing things. And about half of the people on this planet are very uncomfortable finishing things. Sometimes they describe themselves as perfectionists. Sometimes they describe themselves as lazy. A lot of times they describe, describe themselves as having ADHD, which it, honestly, it's not, it's, it's for most people, it's not really a disorder. It's actually just a fundamental miscalculation upon what motivates people. People who are finishers are motivated by structure, and people who are, motivated, people who are starters are motivated by consequences. And so once you start accepting consequences into your daily life, and the way I do this is through electric shock and with bets, monetary bets. Every day I set up several bets about things I will do that day, and if I fail, I have to pay a penalty. And ever since I made a bet to make bets, so I have to make a bet every day or else I lose money, ever since I did that, my productivity skyrocketed times like a billion. So I think that that's, that's the kind of the core of my entire life is showing people there are different personalities and different ways to approach those personalities and get stuff done. And for the majority of us who feel like we're not productive, it's just because we don't accept consequences into our life. Fair enough. Um, kind of the next thing I wanted to get into, because like we were chatting a little bit on Facebook yesterday about precision nutrition because they're a habit-based uh, model. And a lot of the people that listen to my show know precision nutrition really well. So maybe <clears throat> can you talk about like that? psychology behind, you know, building a new habit and breaking a bad habit for the audience? Sure. Uh, they're, they're two fundamentally different things. Um, what's more interesting? I can talk about both, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so if you look at the brain, can they see me? Or is this going to be audio? Mostly? It'll be audio. <laughs> All right, cool. Um, so basically you have a brain and at the front of your brain, above your forehead, uh, is a thing called your prefrontal cortex. And at the back of your brain, right up next to the neck, is a thing called your basal ganglia. The prefrontal cortex is where thoughts are stored. The basal ganglia is where habits are stored. The more times that you do something, that the, whenever you do something new, whenever you're thinking, you're utilizing the prefrontal cortex. But your prefrontal cortex is active less than 40% of your day. More than half your life is spent in habit. And so what happens if you watch someone do something new um, and for the majority of things, all habits are the same. There is no such thing as bad. There is no such thing as good. There's just stuff that you do, you tend to keep doing. Um, so what happens, though, is if you look at someone trying to change their habit, uh, someone trying to, let's say, oh, I don't know, go to the gym. Um, if someone's trying to go to the gym, the first few times there's going to be a lot of thought involved. They're not sure what to do. They feel uncomfortable, and your prefrontal cortex is lighting up like fire. But the more times that someone does the exact same things, so that is getting out of bed, putting on your clothes, leaving the house, opening the door to the gym, swiping your card, the more times you ha you, they do that in a row, the activation starts to happen much less in the prefrontal cortex and starts to activate towards the back of your brain in the basal ganglia. As it migrates backwards, that's, as, that's what a habit is. That's when a habit is formed. And a habit, I define it as when it's harder to not do something than to do something. Another good example of a habit is brushing your teeth. Uh, probably the majority of your, of your readers brush their teeth, and if they don't brush their teeth, they have probably feel this weird feeling in the, in the morning that uh, makes them want to brush their teeth, but that feeling isn't real. That feeling doesn't exist. Where does that come from? For over seven million years, humans did not brush their teeth. 
and suddenly now we feel weird if we don't brush our teeth, that's only because we've done it for so many days in a row that your brain starts to create an uncomfort, discomfort sensation towards any action you do repeatedly enough times. So that's why it's as hard for someone to start flossing or it's as hard for someone to stop flossing as it is for somebody else to start flossing. It's as hard for people who talk about, like, just go to the gym, willpower, just do it. Honestly, it's as hard for them to stop going to the gym as it is for you to start going to the gym. Once a habit is dialed in, it's there. So that's kind of the core. So forming a good habit is pretty, um, I think our model is really interesting. Uh, it's, I call it the micro habit model. What we do is we take two parts. We take um, uh, consequences and rewards, and we take uh, the tiny habits model of BJ Fogg, and we put them together. So we say, we used to, we, like a, a couple of years ago, we took a few hundred people, I think it was like 245 people who wanted to go to the gym, and about half of them had never gone ever. And we said, all right, here's what you're going to do. Uh, for the first week, you're just going to put on your gym clothes and walk outside. The second week, you're going to swipe your card at the gym, but don't go outside. Third week, you're going to spend 15 minutes at the gym. Fourth week, you're going to spend 30 minutes at the gym. If you fail, you lose $50 on any one of those steps. And if you succeed, you get to buy yourself this present that you committed to. So what we did is we took those tiny habits, slowly made them increase, and we added a consequence and a reward. So it's so easy to do, you can't fail, and so stupid to fail, why would you? Well, what happened was that 80% of our people went to the gym every single day or did their steps every single day for the first month. By the time they got to the end of the first month, the bet was over. But they had already formed deeply the habit of putting on their gym clothes and going and closing their front door. That was done. That was dialed in. Once you're there, the rest of it just kind of follows naturally. So we measure them for the next 60 days after that, so 90 days in total. 80% of the 80% of the people who went every 30 days for the first 30 days went for the second 30 days. And again, 80% of the 80% of the 80% went all 90 days. So over 50% of the users went to the gym every single day for 90 days in a row. It was extremely uncomfortable for them to not go. And that has continued to go, uh, those numbers continue to stay. I mean, it's not 50% not of people go from that cohort, but still many, many, many of those people go every single day to the gym from four or five years ago. So that's kind of like, that's the process of forming a habit. Okay. Um, so I'm really kind of curious for you to talk about Pavlock because like I posted that I was interviewing in this fitness group and like I basically opened up like Pandora's box of like opinions, thoughts, concerns. So I'm kind of curious like when you started the company like you know a lot of people did use it for good. They broke habits, they changed their lives. But I'm assuming there's probably some people that thought it wasn't the best idea. So I'm kind of curious like what were some of the backlash that you received for starting Pavlock? Um, well, I mean, I was on Shark Tank and got called a con artist by Mark Cuban. He yeah. just put me in, a, he put me in his Instagram story two days ago. So, oh, so I don't know if that's good or bad. Uh, I mean, a billionaire still knows my name and still calls yeah. me out five years, four years later. So I think that's a win. Um, I don't think that guy needs to get something else to do with his time than think about me. Um, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously I got a lot of negative impact, uh, a lot of negative responses, but those people are irrelevant, dude. Like <laughs> people are like, Oh my God, no one's going to want to put on a device that shot that hurts, that hurts yourself. Like, Oh my God, like I like my bad habits. Like, all right, go fuck yourself. You're not my, you're not my target market. Um, you also don't get the rewards and that's why you're fat. So like for the majority of people who are afraid of the product, they also are afraid of self-improvement, afraid of, afraid of change. And to me, they're not even, they're not relevant. They're completely irrelevant. Because um, what I've learned from business 
especially trying to build zero to one businesses that change the world or do something in a different way, um, you can get a good reaction and that's okay. You can get a bad reaction and that's even better. But the worst thing you could possibly get is no reaction. And there's zero people who don't have some opinion on Pavlock. And that's why I know it's a good idea. Okay, fair enough. Also, the funny thing is like, the number of people in the early days where I said I was building a wearable device that helps you break bad habits, and the first thing they would say is, what does it do, like shock me, was in the 30% range. 30% of people I met would instantly know as a joke that a shock device for humans would break a bad habit. It's very endemic. But getting people to actually use it and try it, there's a big fear factor. And this has been something that we've been fighting against. I think the word shock was probably a mistake. Um, I think that, because um, if you feel it, I don't know if you've ever felt it, but it doesn't even hurt. It's like a tap. It's like if I touch you on the wrist and I, maybe I flick you with a rubber band. It's not like you're getting, it's not like you're like touching it like your fence. It's like you're literally like uh, getting a rubber band snap against your wrist, right? And so the word shock has this like implication. And then people, I guess nobody really wants to have a negative product. But what people don't seem to understand and what we've been, I'd say, pretty bad at communicating is the fact that the shock is very, very minor in what we do. It's a positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement. It's a, it's a stimulus behavior trainer tool. You win vibrations when you do good habits. You earn points for doing stuff. You win money by doing good habits. And you get zapped if you program it to zap you. So for bad habit cessation, the zap is extremely powerful. For waking you up in the morning, the zap is extremely powerful. But people who are trying to form morning routine or do a gratitude journal or go to the gym, they almost never get zapped. That's not the point. The point is that our product is... Uh, it, like the company's mission is that 100% of people who make a commitment achieve that commitment. That's our that's our mission statement. That's our goal. We have a green light bulb that only turns on when 100% of our users have achieved 100% of their commitments over the last six months. My life goal is to make that light bulb turn on by the time I die and keep it on forever. And uh, that mission is much broader and larger than the shock. But for some reason, the shock is the thing that people latch onto. So. Okay. Um, have you ever had any people who've tried it who had a bad like experience with it, or do you find that majority of people who try the product end up seeing success in the end? Uh, I mean, there's people who don't like the shock, obviously. Yeah. Um, there's, I'd say the majority of people don't try it. Like the people who are willing to try it once realize it doesn't hurt. It's like. Uh, it's like, I mean, it's like any kind of person who doesn't want to make a commitment or make a change. Like, uh, like people who are afraid of lifting weights because they're going to get too built bulky mm -hmm. is the same kind of person who's like, un like unwilling to try the product. Who, by the way, Mark Cuban was unwilling to try the product. Um, those people I find attend, I tend to find. Um, I mean, I'm not going to convince them. Like, why would I try? Uh, but the majority of people who put it on, and the majority of people, I mean, obviously there's like an onboarding phase, right? So if you use it, if you put it on, the nice thing about wearables is that. Um, you only lose a customer when they take it off. Like, if you're building an app, you have to get them to open your app every day. But when you're building a wearable device, you only got to get them put it on once and then, you know, never take it off. So that's why, like, a lot of concerns are, like, about showering, waterproofing, battery life. Because um, you, you, can you can't lose a customer unless they take it off. You can't lose a customer. It's impossible, right? So... Um, so that, like, what we found is that once we get someone to put it on and keep it on for seven days, which is the big fucking magic number, if we can get you to keep it on for seven days, it's like wearing a watch. You know how, like, you feel naked if you don't have your watch on? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Um, if you can get a user to wear it for seven days, then they become the kind of user who feels uncomfortable not wearing it. And so 
what we found is that, uh, well, first of all, we've sold 75,000 units and we have about 19,000 daily active users. So that's about 25% of our users use it every single day, which I think is pretty good. Um, and that, that number of Pavlov includes Pavlov 1 and Pavlov 2. So that's like five-year-old customers still. Um, and uh, one of the big pitches we have is that, so breaking bad habits we haven't talked about is done in a very fundamentally different way than forming good habits. To break a bad habit, uh, you basically use a thing called aversion therapy or aversive conditioning. Um, it's the same as, uh, so just to take a step back and talk about bad habit cessation for a second. Um, bad habit or habits are stored in the back of the brain. And the back of the brain is your basal ganglia. It doesn't understand language. It doesn't understand thought. It only understands in the moment sensations. It understands pleasure, pain, and nothing else. And that's where habits are stored. And so what happens is that you can't think yourself out of nail biting because you don't even notice yourself nail biting throughout the day. You know what I mean? Yep. You don't notice it happening. So what we found is that there's the, a very well-proven science that uh, called aversion therapy or aversive conditioning. It was one of the most common ways to quit addictions and bad habits in the 1970s, 80s, and early 90s. And it was essentially Pavlovian conditioning. Um, you ever get really, really drunk on tequila and then get sick or having friends who have ever gotten really drunk on some kind of alcohol and yeah. then vomit? Yeah. You know how in one night they stop liking that, that, uh, that drink? Mm-hmm. That's an aversion. The smell in one night, a thing they used to like that was a habit disappears. And an aversion is created by either nausea or electric shock. And so what we found is that there's a protocol that used to be very common and is still done in a couple uh, a couple clinics in America, um, most notably the Schickshadel Clinic, which helps people quit uh, opiate addictions and alcoholism in a matter of five to 10 days. And what they basically do is for five to 10 days, you do the action on purpose while you receive an electric shock. So you bite your nails on purpose while you get a zap. You're going to want to put down the nails or put down a cigarette, uh, but you keep doing it for five to 10 minutes for five to 10 days. What happens is your reptile brain doesn't understand if you're getting shocked because of the action or just while the action. It doesn't understand time. But your reptile brain, the basal ganglia, creates a Pavlovian association between cigarette to mouth zap. Cigarette to mouth zap, just like dogs salivating when they hear a bell, the same way your reptile brain says, whoa, I don't like this anymore. And within five to 10 days, stops doing the action or stops liking the taste of that food or stops smoking the cigarette. So uh, that, that five-day protocol is what we use to help people break bad habits. Now, there's a reason I was telling you this, and I can't remember what it was. What was I just saying? Uh, like you were talking about the difference between breaking a bad habit and forming a good habit, I believe, from the beginning. Yeah, there's another thing I was just talking about a second ago. I took a step back. But anyway, that's how bad habit cessation works. And so for our clients, oh, yeah, I remember what I was saying. Um, so one of our big pitches is that like our product, for majority of users, you'll kick your habit in, in, in a week. We have a five-day course on break a bad habit. Of the users who use it to quit nail biting, about 80% of them have quit nail biting by day seven, and that we measured up at a six-month follow-up, and the 80% rate maintains. Um, about uh, We did one study at uh, UMass Boston where we showed 75% of smokers quit, uh, quit smoking within one week, and they were smoke-free at a six-month follow-up. Um, so somewhere above 50% of our users who go through the program are smoke-free, nail-bite-free, um, sugar-free, uh, hair-picking-free, alcohol-free at a six-month follow-up, which is well higher than the gold standards of, uh, of other, uh, other um, habit cessation products, drugs, medicines, and positive reinforcement therapies. Um, but so our pitch goes that by Pavlock, we have a six-month six month money-back guarantee, and you don't have to wear it forever. If you're trying to break a bad habit, wear it for 10 days, you're done. Send it back if you want. Just let us know the truth. We don't mind. We're just happy to be part of your journey. So 
what I was getting at is that of our users, 25% of them tend to use the product every day, which is still, it actually makes me confused because I'm like, about half of our users buy it to break a bad habit and they don't need to wear it anymore. But once they've bought it to break a bad habit, well, then they start using our morning routine app or they start using our coaches or they start using our uh, gratitude journal and then they, and especially they start using it as an alarm clock. Um, by far the world's best alarm clock, like a 99% wake up rate uh, with almost no snooze. And, um, and then it becomes part of their daily routine. So I don't know. I'm pretty proud of the 25% number. It kind of blew my mind when I heard that. Fair enough. Like, I'm almost curious about, like, if there was something else other than a shock. Like, maybe some people are scared of the shock that would zap them. But is there, like, how you said, like, the bell with the dogs where they would salivate or, like, yeah. I don't beeps, know, have their... Beeps, vibrates, zaps. So, like, a lot of users don't ever get zapped. I'd say probably about 20% of users never, ever, ever get zapped. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'll show you what, I'll, I'll show you what this, the beep sounds like. So, like, you could, for example, we have a nail-biting detection, hand detection, so it knows if you're scratching or biting your nails. Mm-hmm. And you can program it to either vibrate when you do it, beep when you do it, or count down, or zap when you do it, or count down, so it goes vibrate, vibrate, beep, 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 zap. Uh, and so we let people choose their emotions, right? Uh, but the zap gets your attention, so that, and that's why, like, I mean, it's what, it's what we're known for. So, uh, and then we use vibration as a positive reinforcer. So um, when you're walking enough steps, you get vibrations. When you do something good in the app, other people can send you good vibes, which you get like, a, like John just sent you good vibes and you get vibrations yeah. on your wrist. Um, when you're being productive, we have like a rescue time integration. So it knows like your productivity score over the last 30 minutes. And if you're being very, very productive, you get a vibration every couple minutes. So like once you get in that groove, you want to stay there. So we've been using, uh, and then we have an in-app currency called Volts. So you win points and soon real money uh, in exchange for doing good habits. So we use those as positive reinforcers, and then we have a negative reinforcer. So it's an all-in-one behavior trainer. Okay. Yeah, because I think for me, if I was to, like, pick something else other than a shock, I would, like, put one of the most embarrassing songs that go on my phone anytime I'm in public doing something stupid. Yeah. Because I would get annoying enough that I would always have to, like, you have to have to physically go to your phone to turn it off. But, That's uh, actually a good idea. Yeah, I like, right? that. like a little, little yeah, we, Justin Bieber, you know, putting a public. <laughs> <laughs> One thing we do for our coaching clients, uh, so we have like a, a coaching program for either people who are doing a habit makeover or entrepreneurs who are trying to increase the size of the business. And you get like assigned a personal coach. The coach basically works with you to define what the most important habits are for you and then holds you accountable every day to doing those behaviors. And so for our entrepreneur clients, one of the, the coolest things that we've added is, um, you know, you win rewards when you do positive habits, but we make you commit to stuff you're going to do every night before you go to bed. And then if you don't do them in the morning, the coach will text you, the coach will zap you. But if you keep not doing it, we shut off your internet. You turn off your phone and shut off your internet and you're not allowed to use internet for the rest of the day. So we have the ability to like control our clients uh, laptop, like basically we use uh, integration with an app called Freedom. Uh, but basically our coach is able to just turn off your internet and you're unable to exit out of it. And, uh, and we found that to be, we found that no one has ever once ever, ever missed that. Like that fear of internet is way stronger than a fear of shock. Yeah. So, um, so we've been adding like different kinds of, and then you can have, you know, money donated to charities you don't like, um, and all that other stuff. But yeah, zap, any kind of negative reinforcer, any kind of deadline, any kind of social proof, uh, social shaming, all of those are essentially the same thing. A punisher is a negative reinforcer, and they all work in the same way. Um, you just got to find what works for each person. Oh, 100%. If you, like, got someone's, like, cell phone and threw, threw them into, like, 3G network, like, they would be so pissed off really fast. <laughs> you mean, like, slowing down their internet? Yeah, 100%. Like, if they were scrolling no. through Facebook and then they, like, get to that one scroll and all the <laughs> images are just trying to load and you're like, God damn it. 
Like, that's, like, our issue in, in our world today is, like, when our internet's too damn slow. Yep. Actually, yeah, you program that in for uh, for me. So I have a Chrome extension, and I have my own little personal extension. Mm-hmm. And, like, um, if I've been using Facebook for too long, it starts to slow down my Facebook loading on my computer. So it'll take, like, four seconds per page rather than instant. So I found that to be really, really, like, it just annoys me enough that I, uh, uh, that I just stopped doing it. It's pretty yeah. interesting. Um, so maybe the next question I'm kind of curious about is now that you're in the wearable tech industry, like, what do you see in the future? Like, what would people be kind of interested in because like you know almost every tech company has some sort of watch variation so i'm kind of curious on your thoughts of like how the future is going to look and say like i don't know three years in the wearable tech industry um i think no one is looking at the actual future of it which is like which is well first of all okay so there's only a few wearable companies it's actually kind of crazy to me that like the kind of person who's able to build hardware is very rare and usually the kind of person who's able to build hardware is not the kind of person who knows what hardware should be built. Um, the kind of guy who's able to create is almost always an engineer or some kind of um, finisher type. They're, they're not an idea person. They're not creative. And so that's why you see every like, – I mean, come on. Like this is the iPhone, right? And the first iPhone came out 11 years ago now almost. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and now if you go into any cell phone store, every single phone looks exactly identical to the first iPhone. Every one of them, right? Do you think that that's really the ultimate best way for a phone to be designed? Of course not. It's just the one that succeeded and everybody else copied, 100% copied. So when you look at, and, and I think you can see Apple's doing the same thing, where after Jobs died, it's just like a very much a copycat industry with no real innovation. So 11 years in tech is an eternity, and we're still using the same goddamn phone. It fucking makes me so mad. Um, so my point being that like, I don't think that there are any other contenders in the wearable tech space that are going to do anything interesting besides us. And I know that sounds egocentric, but I also think it's true. And that's because they're all approaching the problem from the same fucking way. Track stuff, track stuff, track stuff, track stuff, track stuff, track stuff. Let's add more sensors in. Let's make it prettier. Let's reduce the battery life for some reason. Let's, like, make the screen brighter. Like, no one fucking cares. Every phone, every smartwatch does exactly the same thing for exact for every single user. It shows them the time. It shows them notifications. And it tracks their steps. That's, like, it. Right? That's no, how many people have you ever seen actually use an app on their, on their iWatch? Like, fucking no one, right? No one ever. Maybe the timer. It's the same as Alexa. Like, maximum, right? Like, no one uses this stuff except for notifications, basic fitness tracking, uh, and um, time. That's it. And so what I think the big, the, the big problem is is that uh, people are looking at hardware as, um, as another phone. They're not looking at it as, like an, as, a, as an extension into humanity. And so what I mean by that is that I believe that our product and what we're doing um, is to create a connection between a coach and you. So it actually becomes a way for your human real-life coach to touch you and tap you and remind you to do stuff. It's an ability. It's a thing that lets you pre-commit to doing tasks and then have another person interact with that and be closer to you. Um, It's like augmenting the phone, which allows another person to be present in your life, but augmenting that through touch, which is the most powerful stimulus to influence human behavior. And so I think that in the future of the wearable industry, um, the way I look, I mean, there's a couple ways to look at it, but I believe that the, the future of the wearable industry is going to be about, uh, about pre-commitment and behavior, not about tracking. And, uh, secondly, I think hardware as a service will be a big thing soon. So people selling hardware as a subscription model 
um, that I think will be a new business model that changes kind of the, the framework of, um, of hardware. Yeah, like I remember having a conversation with another coach and it was kind of like in that era w- where like the Fitbit came out and then everyone started getting their own version of it. And he was saying like, you know, all this wearable tech is great for fitness, but you know, like you said, it distracts your stats, but it doesn't tell you what to do with it. Right. The only reason why Fitbit, in my opinion, did well is because it gives you a goal to do 10,000 steps every day. So people are like, oh, I need to do my 10,000. And that's why it got really popular. But, you know, the moment till someone creates a, a watch that tells you when to wake up, how much hours of sleep you need, when to work out, what to work out with, like, we're long ways away from that. Or you could just buy a padlock. It's already done. <laughs> that too. <laughs> I mean, we track your sleep. We tell you what time to wake up. We wake you up in your lightest stage of sleep. We help, uh, we program in your morning routine and make sure you do your morning routine. Then we hold you accountable to your daily tasks each day through your computer and phone. So yeah, it's exactly designed for it. But for some, and it's not hard. It's not even hard. It's just knowing when to do stuff and the trackers yeah. already do. That. Yeah. And then it's programming in stimuli. That's it. Perfect. So maybe for the last question, if you had to give one piece of advice, like some parting words for my audience, what would it be? Um, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> like what about? Um, just life in general, health, anything, anything that kind of sparks the mind, like some advice that you usually give to people when they chat with you. Uh, basically know thyself. Uh, I found that personality typing is the most important thing that has revolutionized my life and most entrepreneurs lives. Uh, the majority of people feel like they should be a specific way. And that specific way happens to be the ENTJ personality type, which is the executor, executive, get stuff done, want to do stuff, be extroverted, all that stuff. And if you're not that personality, you feel broken. The truth is you're not broken. You are designed to do different stuff. And especially if you're an idea person who has trouble getting stuff done, don't feel like you are broken or have a disorder. Or just realize that, there are, that your job is to come up with great ideas and then give it to other people who actually implement those ideas. That's it. Awesome. So thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. Great, man. It was a lot of, a lot of fun. All right. So that's going to wrap up episode 217. What did you think? Would you wear a device that would shock you to stop you from doing a bad habit. I kind of want to find out because a lot of people had different opinions about this approach to crushing goals. Do you need the kind of fear or background noise knowing that if you do something wrong, you'd get a little snap of uh, electricity to stop you? I'm kind of curious. So reach out, let me know your thoughts, good or bad. Hopefully this kind of opened your eyes and mind and started a conversation. That's what my purpose with some of these episodes is to start the conversation of stuff. And I'm not afraid to talk to people that maybe don't fall in the lines of my values because I would never promote something like this for my clients or myself, but for, you know... A certain individual that works really well off something like this why not right I kind of look at it as just another way of achieving something so you know in the rehab world there's physios there's chiros there's dry needling there's cupping there's taping there's a, a instrument assisted soft tissue mobilization there's this there's that there's shockwave there's laser therapy and they all have their place but they only work with a certain amount of people, population, 
specific injuries, etc. So maybe this is one of those things that could help a handful of people that don't see success in fitness and health or any other aspect in their life. So I'm really curious on your thoughts. Reach out. I would love to have a conversation about it. And hit the show notes, pre-sale for my book. It's coming out. It's super, super, super close. I'm almost about to announce the official release date because my web designer has all the content and now I'm just waiting for them to give me a sample of how it's gonna look. And the moment I say yes, that's it. Let's put this thing up live on the internet. Boom, it's going to be epic. It's going to go live and I'm super, super excited. So. Hit the show notes, get your name on the pre-sale list. You'll get an email before anyone on the internet so you can get your first copy of the Ironclad Body Training System. That's it for me. Until next time, you guys.